The time is now. Volume One, Episode Two. This is Employment Law Now. For those who came back to listen after our first podcast episode, uh, thank you so much for coming back. For those of you who are finding us for the first time and listening to us for the first time, thank you, of course, for listening as well. And I hope you'll subscribe and make this podcast a part of your regular routine too. Don't forget, in addition to subscribing on iTunes or Google Play, you can also get this podcast through our new dedicated website www.employmentlawnow.com where you can also provide feedback and comments on the podcast and even suggest topics or issues that you'd like us to cover in future episodes. I certainly do appreciate any and all feedback and suggestions you may have. We have a great episode today with an important trend that I want to talk about, some noteworthy labor and employment developments, and an update on an issue I discussed last episode. Then we're going to have the benefit of an absolutely terrific guest, a former FBI agent who will be talking about what should be on your to-do list when it comes to cybersecurity and data breach risks. So let's jump right in. Let's start off with our Government Now segment. In our Government Now segment, we've been hearing so much and reading so much about all of these confirmation hearings in Washington, D.C. It's just like the movies, the way I'm hearing it and reading it. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Is there any better movie scene than that when it comes to lawyers and witnesses and and all of that one of my favorites a few good men for those keeping score at home but that's what it's been seeming like with all of these confirmation hearings that have been going on over the past few weeks with the new trump administration um but a very significant development just today uh, and today is february 15th 2017 as we're recording this and just today the um nominee for secretary of the department of labor Andrew Puzder just took himself out of consideration one day before his confirmation hearing was set to begin. Apparently, not enough Republicans were going to be supporting him. He had been coming under all kinds of fire, particularly by Democrats, and as I said uh, most recently by some on the Republican side as well, uh, for some of the prior positions he's been taking on immigration, um, as well as allegations of domestic abuse, um, uh, allegations regarding a housekeeper that he hired, and some other tax issues um, that have been reported. So in any event, he took himself out of consideration today, and we'll see what what happens with the next nominee for Secretary of the Department of Labor. Um, businesses, and in particular the fast food industry, um, really hailing this guy uh, as the next secretary. Um, he's a former executive in the fast food industry for Carl's Jr. and Hardee's, um, and the business community certainly felt uh, that he was going to be much more pro-employer uh, in his agenda. Um, I suspect that anyone who is the next nominee for this position will similarly be uh, somewhat 
pro-employer or at least more pro-employer uh, than those in the Democrat uh, Obama administration. Um, but we'll see how that goes and uh, we'll continue to keep you posted on that. Moving on to our trending now segment, our trending now segment. Uh, there's definitely a discernible pro-employee trend toward regulating and restricting what information employers can get from job applicants during the hiring process. You're dealing with criminal background checks, credit history checks. The Internet, as you all know, gives the ability to find out almost anything and everything that you can about an applicant. And so many employers say to themselves, well, why can't we if we've got all of this great access through the Internet? As an aside, in terms of the hiring process, I'm never really sure um, that I understood the whole reference thing when it came to new jobs. Basically, you're trying to determine if the applicant knows anybody on the planet. Why give a reference name that isn't going to be good, isn't going to say something good about you? Who would do that? Um, but I digress. Anyway, um, trying to get as much truthful information as possible, trying to fill in as much uh, in the way of gaps uh, as possible, um, is why employers want to use the Internet, want to use third parties uh, to get all kinds of information, um, while at the same time there's been this noticeable trend of regulating um, what employers can and cannot ask about during the hiring process. The latest trend in this regard um, is regulation that prevents inquiries into an applicant's salary history. So, for example, when you are talking to a potential new hire, you might ask, well, what are your salary expectations? Even more than that, you may ask, what were you making at your last job, at your last couple of jobs? Oftentimes, you don't know if the applicant is being truthful, and in some cases, you're even asking for proof of prior salary history. Well, the city of Philadelphia just signed into law a wage equity ordinance that prohibits, with certain exceptions, prohibits employers from asking about job applicants' wage history at any point during the employment process. The new law is effective on May 23, 2017, and the rationale for this particular law um, is that it's consistent with the national trend to try to close the gender pay gap. In other words, Many feel that if you base pay decisions on pay history, you may perpetuate past pay disparities that were based on gender in the first place, and you will continue those disparities from job to job as they rely on prior salary history. So the city of Philadelphia is actually the first city to enact this kind of law. Uh, Massachusetts and California have passed statewide prohibitions this past year, and there are other jurisdictions that are considering similar laws. So you certainly should watch out for news in your particular jurisdiction, um, as I believe this trend will continue not just on the state level, but uh, also on the city and local level when it comes to asking about wage history during uh, the hiring process. Moving on to our Noteworthy Now segment, I have three noteworthy developments that I want to raise in today's episode. Uh, first, you all know by now that on January 31st, President Trump nominated 10th Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Neil Gorsuch to replace the late Justice Scalia on the United States Supreme Court. Politics aside, that White House primetime announcement certainly had all the feel of a reality show with the president taking the long walk to the podium to make his announcement. It felt like everybody was anxiously waiting for who was going to be picked on the last episode of The Bachelor. 
though certainly with far more important consequences. On the one hand, we're not really shifting the court if just Justice Gorsuch uh, is in fact confirmed, since we have what would be a conservative filling what was an already conservative seat um, with Justice Scalia. On the other hand, um, Justice Gorsuch would provide important votes on key issues that are coming to the Supreme Court in the near future. Um, as I mentioned to you in the last episode, uh, the class action waiver issue is going to be coming to the Supreme Court, um, and Judge Gorsuch might prove to be a deciding vote um, on a very pro-class action waiver platform. Uh, based on his prior decisions uh, on the Tenth Circuit, uh, he also seems to have trouble with administrative overreach. In other words, not feeling as if agencies, administrative agencies, should get so much deference when it comes to interpreting uh, their regulations that they are um, created to enforce. So uh, Judge Gorsuch not only will be uh, a, a new conservative seat in the Supreme Court if confirmed, um, but will likely have a large impact on some of the employment-related cases that are coming up very soon. We'll see how the nomination process goes, um, and if he is confirmed, we will update you on future episodes as these new cases uh, begin to come about. The second noteworthy now uh, issue that I wanted to raise, you know, last episode I talked about the Mount Rushmore of employment law, and I referred to workplace harassment and discrimination as one of the faces on Mount Rushmore. A second face would be disability and leave issues. And there's an interesting case that was just decided by the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit on whether an employee's attendance in the office can be considered an essential job function for purposes of disability discrimination and accommodation. For those of you who are keeping score at home, the case name is Williams versus AT&T Mobility Services. In that case, the plaintiff was a customer service representative whose duties were answering incoming calls and assisting customers with technical and billing issues. Unlike the relatively harder physical limitation cases, plaintiff here had the more difficult uh, mental condition issues to address. She claimed that she suffered from depression and anxiety attacks. And again, unlike physical limitation cases where the limitation may be more obvious, when you're dealing with the mental conditions such as depression and anxiety, they're much harder to, uh, to notice and in many cases much harder to be able to verify when an employee claims to have some condition. The plaintiff in this particular case also alleged that her mental condition was exacerbated sometimes by the very tense calls that she was forced to have with customers. So this plaintiff, due to her medical condition, was frequently absent from work and ultimately terminated for job abandonment and violating the company's attendance policy. She filed a lawsuit under the federal statute known as the Americans with Disabilities Act. Now, while this case was involving the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, it's important that you all understand never to forget the possible interplay with state law. When it comes to leave issues, when it comes to leave or accommodation issues, you also have to consider what might be a more stringent state law uh, on the particular disability issue. 
But at least under the ADA, for purposes of this case, one of the requirements under the law is that you provide a reasonable accommodation as an employer. And here, the plaintiff requested a certain accommodations that included flexible scheduling and the ability to take more breaks during the day when she was suffering, in particular, from some anxiety or depression. Um, unlike the FMLA, which is the Family Medical Leave Act, uh, leave is one possible accommodation under the ADA, but it's not the only accommodation that an employer is required to grant. You can have other accommodations that uh, you give to an employee who is covered under the ADA if the accommodation would be reasonable and effective. And at the end of the day, the plaintiff in these ADA cases needs to show that uh, she could perform the essential functions of the job with or without a reasonable accommodation that she could perform the essential functions of the job with or without a reasonable accommodation. The court here went through a discussion of the factual history, and so many of these cases are very fact-sensitive, and held that regular attendance was an essential job function for this particular job, and the accommodations that she requested would not have helped her performance anyway. So the takeaway here is that you want to analyze if you have an issue where one of your employees uh, is not meeting your attendance uh, policy, you want to analyze whether attendance for that particular job was an essential function of the job. Not every single job will support regular attendance as being an essential function. I think typically from a common denominator standpoint, those that really necessitate interaction with others that can't be done remotely will more likely fit within the uh, spectrum of jobs where you can say that um, attendance is a, an essential function of that job. You do certainly want to make sure that the job description for those jobs specifically say that attendance is an essential function. And you also want to make sure that you can support why regular in-person attendance is essential for that particular job before you get embroiled in any kind of litigation. The third noteworthy now uh, issue that I want to raise uh, deals with the FLSA, the Fair Labor Standards Act. And again, you've undoubtedly heard and read a lot about the FLSA, particularly dealing with the overtime regs and the exemptions. But a recent decision from the Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit uh, introduces a new potential concern uh, under the FLSA. And for those of you keeping track at home, the case is Pineda versus JTCH Apartments. We know that in addition to the substantive wage and hour requirements under the FLSA, there is also an anti-retaliation provision that prohibits retaliating against someone for complaining about their overtime pay or complaining about how they were classified under the FLSA. Ironically, the FLSA basically uses objective numbers when it comes to damages. So, for example, employee X or group of employees are owed X number of dollars because they worked X number of hours and were not paid properly. But here's something in this new case that's a little bit more subjective. Here, the Fifth Circuit in the Pineda case held that in retaliation cases under the FLSA, an employee can recover damages for emotional distress the all-subjective emotional distress. I suffered mental anguish because I was improperly classified and I was retaliated against for complaining about it. 
the court essentially here equated a statutory retaliation claim under the FLSA with a non-statute common law retaliation claim, like, for example, the tort of retaliatory discharge that is allowed in some states, where emotional distress damages are available under those tort claims. What's interesting here is that this holding under the Fifth Circuit may end up applying in jurisdictions that don't recognize such a common law tort like that of retaliatory discharge. So you may have a situation where your state, your jurisdiction, doesn't recognize a common law non-statutory tort that would provide for emotional distress damages, but now under the statute, the FLSA, we're going to allow emotional distress damages to be awarded to a successful plaintiff um, in a retaliation claim. In any event, the Fifth Circuit in the Pineda case now joins the Sixth and the Seventh Circuits with this holding, and uh, employers should certainly continue to pay attention to see if other circuits join in or if there becomes some sort of conflict uh, and difference of opinions uh, by other courts of appeals. Next, we move to our Update Now segment, our Update Now segment, and I want to update a piece that I did in our last episode on the EEOC putting out for public comment uh, its new proposed guidance on workplace harassment. Originally, as I told you two weeks ago, the comment period extended to February 9th, uh, which would have been last week from when I'm recording this, but the EEOC has just extended that deadline by 40 days to March 21, 2017, in order to give the public the benefit of more time to examine what certainly is a very lengthy proposed guidance. So instead of February 9th, the public now has until March 21st to offer comments. So get your comments into the EEOC if you're so inclined, either as your own business or part of some business group. And again, uh, let me know if you need a copy of the EEOC's new proposed guidance on workplace harassment, and I'll be happy to provide it to you. Finally, uh, we move to this episode's Expert Guest Now segment, uh, and I'm really pleased that today's guest was willing to come on and talk to us for a few minutes about an issue that continues to cause such tremendous concern for employers, cybersecurity and data breach. I'm very pleased to have a very special guest today, uh, Mr. Austin Burglis. Uh, until recently, Austin served as the assistant special agent in charge of the FBI's cyber branch in New York, where he oversaw all national security and criminal cyber investigations in the largest cyber branch in the FBI. Drawing on that experience, Austin is now the senior managing director and head of K2 Intelligence's cyber defense practice, where he leads a team focused on advising global clients across all sectors on cybersecurity and cyber defense, providing proactive cyber defense, incident response, and threat detection services. Uh, Austin, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. So, uh, as I just mentioned, you previously worked as a special agent uh, in the FBI's cyber division. Uh, when were you in that role, and uh, what kind of things were you involved with specifically? Sure. So, I, I, uh, I joined the FBI in, in, uh, in 1999 and, uh, and served as a special agent for about 16 years. My last 10 years was involved with the, uh, with the cyber branch out of the New York office, and uh, and as you as you stated from my bio, um, I I started and built the uh, the first um, cyber branch 
uh, in the New York office in 2009 and, uh, and led all operations um, uh, consisting of uh, investigations into uh, computer intrusions and unauthorized access uh, perpetrated by uh, criminal groups, hacktivists, so criminal groups usually uh, loosely knit uh, affiliated uh, organized crime groups emanating out of Eastern Europe uh, looking to uh, compromise um, individuals and corporations for personal financial gain. And we investigated uh, hacktivists, so cells of the collective anonymous who were uh, looking to conduct uh, computer operations for a uh, political or social stance. And then we, we investigated uh, nation states, so Russia, China, Iran, uh, conducting computer network operations against the United States for uh, social, political, or economic advantage. Well, so clearly there was a, a significant need uh, for this to be uh, created. Uh, so what, what did you find the uh, corporate community uh, to be like in terms of uh, educating them uh, that the FBI had this uh, division? Yeah, so so the, the, the FBI division uh, in Washington, D.C., the governing body that, that, that managed all uh, cases throughout the United States was uh, established in 2002. And all of the f uh, 56 field offices had some, some presence or some uh, team of agents that investigated cybercrime. And then um, as cybercrime evolved and, uh, and, and got more technical and more complex, um, the larger offices, Los Angeles, uh, New York, Washington field office, uh, devoted more resources uh, to the problem. So that what led us to build out uh, this this branch in 2009. So I, in 2005, I was the supervisor of the only squad. And then in 2009, we built out the, the branch. And now that branch has has six squads dedicated to the criminal and and, and state-sponsored investigations, um, there was a there was an absolute need for uh, for this, especially in the New York area. Um, we were being inundated with uh, with cases and uh, and concerns from the from the private sector, regardless of uh, of sector, whether it was financial, uh, law firms, critical infrastructure, retail. Um, everybody was seeing an increase of uh, increase in uh, in cyber attacks from from all three of those groups. Well, and I do want to get uh, back to that in a moment. Um, but you're you're currently with a company called K2 Intelligence. Can you tell us about your company and what your new role is? Sure. Uh, uh, K2 Intelligence is a corporate investigations firm um, started a few years ago by um, Jules Kroll and his son Jeremy. Who, uh, who Jules Kroll established uh, and built the Kroll Company back in the 70s and then uh, wound up selling that company, took some time off and then started K2 Intelligence about uh, six, six years ago um, to start a corporate investigations company with, uh, with an eye really towards uh, integrating multiple practices and an eye towards technology. I came over um, in May of 2015 and started the cyber defense practice. Uh, we specialize in in a, in a few major areas. Um, we specialize in proactive services, so everything to help a, a, a company prepare for the inevitable uh, incident or breach, uh, penetration tests and vulnerability assessments, architectural reviews, training, uh, spear phishing testing. Um, we also specialize in incident response and investigations. My team was... Um, 
was was started back in uh, May of 2015 with with some uh, with some folks who came over from the FBI with me uh, to start the core team. And our background uh, is uh, is uh, in the government and um, other intelligence community personnel have joined us. Uh, we've got a deep understanding in the in how the actors, uh, who the actors are, and and the the. The, the procedures and tools that they use, so we we use that information to uh, to really enhance our investigations and incident response capabilities, and then we also have um, have a service where we provide managed detection and response uh, for for clients, and 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 basically we're monitoring uh, the endpoints in an organization to help detect early detection of threats. Um, and then we have a proprietary threat intelligence platform that we provide called K2Watcher, which, uh, which we have a team of analysts that comb the deep and dark web for, uh, for the presence of uh, indicators and, and uh, PII stolen from, uh, from clients and organizations. Well, it's so much of this seems like it's a matter of really still educating uh, the corporate community as to uh, what risks there are out there and, and what they should be doing. It, it seems to me that the issue of cybersecurity and data breach really started getting a lot of the press uh, early on when people started to hear about Target, uh, of course, and a few of the big box retailers. Um, but we're now hearing about these issues coming up with healthcare providers, banks, and other types of companies, large and small. First, what's your response to those who say that cybersecurity and data breach is really only a large company problem? Yeah, so I I, I think that's um, you know from folks who uh, believe only what they read in the news. Um, you're only reading about obviously the largest of breaches: your targets, your Home Depots, your your Sony attacks. Um, these are these are the newsworthy. But what we're seeing is every single day is 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 companies no matter how small they are uh everything from community banks to to uh to small one two three person uh hedge funds uh startup companies being targeted for um a whole host of things from everything from uh source code and uh intellectual property to uh to personally identifiable information to credit card data that can be easily monetized um the the, the the criminals today, um, especially on the on the uh, on the criminal side versus the state sponsored uh, Russia China Iran side, uh, cast a wide net. So, for instance, ransomware uh, is a perfect example. That's uh, that's a threat that's uh, been very popular in 2016 and and is expected to be very popular in 2017. Uh, that that uh, that can easily compromise anybody in. Uh, from from small uh, businesses all the way to large, because it it uh, all it takes is one employee to click on a uh, a link with uh, with malware, and uh, and then the bad guys have a a foothold inside the organization. Um, so so uh, in addition with the with the smaller companies, uh, what we see is that uh, they don't have as a as as much of a robust uh, internal cybersecurity. Um, department uh, to uh, to help ward off and, uh, and and defend against such threats. The larger organizations have more budgets uh, and more uh, and more personnel on staff to help protect themselves. So, oftentimes we see the smaller firms uh, being more vulnerable, and the uh, and the bad actors uh, know about that. 
Well, and the fact that um, uh, the cyber branch was so beefed up uh, during your time uh, with the FBI uh, really shows that the government uh, started to uh, become a real player uh, in this whole area. Where, where is the government currently on this, um, whether it's federal, state, or even on the local side? Um, and where do you see things going uh, on the governmental end? Yeah, so um, throughout my time in the FBI and even now, um, there's uh, there's a, uh, a a lot of effort towards uh, increasing the uh, information sharing and the communication between the public and the private sector. Um, you know, we saw it with uh, with Obama passing the uh, CISA, the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act of 2015, uh, and now uh, with Donald Trump's uh, plans for for cybersecurity, uh, continuing that uh, that effort to uh, for for information sharing. Um, there's there's problems, and I'm not problems, but there's difficulties, and that is, you know, the the, the government, the FBI, and the intelligence community collect uh, information and indicators, oftentimes at a higher classification or above. Uh, unclassified, so secret, top secret, and beyond. Um, there is a process uh, in in that that that's necessary to declassify that information before it's uh, passed out uh, to the private sector for for use in their uh, cyber defense. And the purpose for that is to protect the government's uh, sources and methods. Uh, so if we if the government is collecting information at a higher classification, and then they pass it out to the private sector and then the private sector start blocking all the IP addresses and and use that information for their own protection. It could potentially uh, ruin uh, years of, uh, of of collection in place from the government. So that's, you know, that's really what what the problems are. They're looking to speed up the uh, the sharing of that information, because as we all know, you know, the information moves so quickly and changes so quickly in the in the cyber world that uh, information collected today may not be useful if uh, if shared uh, in a week or two. It has to be almost real time in order for it to be effective for uh, the private sector's cyber defense. Yeah, and I mean it's it's still so scary, and uh, and people out there I think are still trying to get educated on uh, what the risks are and what they need to do. Um, on that point, uh, our listeners tend to be in-house counsel um, as well as human resources uh, professionals. Um, trying to keep some of this as practical as we can. What would you tell employers and and companies, whether large or small, that they should be doing right now when it comes to uh, cybersecurity, data breach? and uh, assessing where their risk points may be sure so um, first off the first step is to, to to acknowledge and understand that that everybody's at risk and if 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 you are the lucky few to have never had a had a had an incident a cyber incident then it's only a matter of time um, organizations should should ensure that they have a plan an incident response plan and that can be in conjunction with a uh, business continuity plan, uh, but it has to be a, a incident response plan that that specifically identifies roles and responsibilities in the event of an incident, a cyber incident. Um, companies should should make sure that they have established relationships with uh, outside uh, outside counsel, a data privacy professional, an uh, uh, incident response firm, a third party firm that can help you in uh, in with a breach. And then also, uh, uh, it's very important to have established relationships in your area of responsibility with law enforcement, whether that's the FBI or Secret Service. And then, and then lastly, um, 
there, we find that a lot of organizations are still um, kind of stovepiped, uh, meaning that folks internally in the C-suite uh, don't speak with uh, on a regular basis with folks in the in the tech uh, department, whether that's the CISO or the CIO or the IT folks, and then as well they don't speak with uh, internal legal from the general counsel's office. There needs to be early and frequent conversation, so that in the event of a breach, it's not the first time uh, that uh, someone in your legal department is having a conversation with someone in your IT department, asking if it's appropriate if certain logs can be shared with outside counsel or an outside IR firm. So early and frequent conversations, um, developing and preparing the plan, and then developing and hardening relationships with uh, with some outside entities are very, very important. And that's very interesting. I just read an article, uh, or at least a report, that I think BAE um, recently issued talking, uh, just as you said, about how communication between the C-suite and the IT folks and just generally internally at the company uh, is really uh, crucial in uh, detecting and in many cases preventing uh, the kind of cybersecurity and data breach attacks that we're talking about. Yeah, look, I mean, it, we're, at, we're at a time now where where large, large companies that spend half a billion dollars in uh, hardening their, their, their cyber defenses are being uh, compromised uh, with just one simple spear phishing email, uh, the, the least most intrusive, intrusive method out there. Um, you know, so it's not enough today is just to have the most expensive and, and latest technology. There has to be, like you said, uh, deep conversation and understanding inside and identification of a company's vulnerabilities because even though you might be in the same sector as a company that was just breached, every company is different. Uh, we can use and learn from the lessons that we read about in the news and discussions with our counterparts and other companies. But in the end, uh, we have to have deep discussion inside the organization and understand what our vulnerabilities are. And the threats aren't just coming from outside, whether it's other countries or, or somebody external to the company, right? I mean, we're, we're also talking about uh, threats internally from a company's own employees, I suspect. Yes, and in fact, you know, over the weekend, we, we just uh, started a new matter of, of, of just that, an insider threat. You're looking at uh, two types of insider threats, either the witting or unwitting. You've got the witting, uh, the, the employee who's... Uh, been fired and then either looking to cause damage on their way out or looking to steal information to sell to a competitor. And then you've got the unwitting, that employee that hasn't been trained properly and is, is the one that's clicking on that uh, spear phishing email that, that, uh, that gives the bad guy a foothold and the ability to exfiltrate uh, proprietary data. Um, insider threat is a, is a, is, is a present danger. Um, companies, um, we, we see companies every single day have, have issues uh, with with insider threat, uh, it it, uh, it 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 there's a lots of lessons to be learned. Uh, understanding what the procedures are inside your organization to take when uh, an employee is let go, or when you have a contractor uh, brought in from outside, what level of access that contractor gets, uh, when that level of access is changed or or cut off when the contractor leaves, a uh, whole host of things that again can be addressed uh, with uh, with more frequent conversations. 
Well, that's very helpful. Um, Austin Berglis, I really want to uh, thank you very much uh, for giving us some very helpful information. It sounds like uh, communication uh, and, and a readiness by creating uh, incident response plans and other types of protocols and policies is at a minimum the, the best first step in, in trying to uh, prevent the company from uh, falling prey to these cybersecurity and data breach attacks. I think that's fair, Mike. Thank you. Thanks so much, and uh, hopefully we can have you back on in future episodes uh, as this issue is certainly not going away anytime soon. That would be great. I appreciate it. Well, I hope you found this episode interesting and useful. Um, we'll be back again in another two weeks uh, to continue our discussion on labor and employment trends and developments uh, and see if there's anything that needs to be updated. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I hope all of your labor is productive.